I'm just going to pray before we get started. Lord, we thank you so much um, that you have such a heart for the least, the last, and the lost. And Lord, we pray that our hearts will break for what breaks your heart. And Lord, we just pray that we will see your kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Will your words remain and will mine wash away? In Jesus' name, amen. It's such a privilege to be here. I am... I actually have the privilege of kind of visiting a few churches every now and then and sharing about God's heart for justice. But coming to my home church is so lovely. Luce and I normally go to the 9.30, so you may well not recognize me. And the amazing thing about St. Mark's is, obviously, there is so much already going on in the realm of justice. So um, for many of you here, this will in no way be the first time that you've heard about God's heart for justice. So for so many of you, If you hear anything tonight from your involvement in all the ministries that already go on, from Prison Alpha to uh, the Night Shelter to everything that's going on to Cal, just hear this one thing, which is thank you. Thank you that you see people on the fringes of society and that you engage with them and that you show Jesus' love for them. And for any of you that this may be a bit of a new topic to you, then my prayer today is that you just come away from the service seeing a bit more about how God's heart for justice comes back to the gospel. Let's go. Just over a week ago, I actually came back from Cambodia. Um, I don't want you to get this idea that this is a regular activity for me because it's really special. But I came back from Cambodia, which sounds really cool. Um, I got back just over a week ago, and I had Monday as a day off. And I thought, oh, wow, what can I do with my Monday? And I did something that I've never done before. I went to the cinema alone. Now, I don't know if you've done this, but this is a really new experience for me. And I'm slightly extroverted. So I, I was quite intimidated going to the cinema alone. And so I went to see Avengers Infinity War. Don't know if anyone's seen it. Yeah, really good film. Uh, feel free to turn to the person next to you and share the biggest plot twist from the film. Don't do that. That will wreck so many people's lives who haven't seen it. Um, but we had this great time. And I saw this film. And I walked in. And I don't know if you've ever been to the cinema alone. But actually, I worked out that there were some excellent things about going to the cinema by myself. Firstly, you don't have to share your popcorn. That is 100% yours. There's no polite sharing. Secondly, you get both armrests. There's no, like, wrestling or politeness over, oh, no, you take the armrest. Don't worry about it. And I've got, like, quite broad shoulders. So, like, I was embracing both armrests. And then, I guess, finally, the best thing is... um, There's certain T-shirts that I'm not allowed to wear anymore because they've got quite a few holes in. Um, And I was like, I can wear whatever T-shirt I want to to the cinema because I'm going alone. I can just put on a sports T-shirt. Nobody's going to know. It was great fun. So I went to the cinema and I watched Infinity Wars. And this was literally just after having come back from Cambodia. I sat down about an hour through the film. There's this moment where Spider-Man does this thing and the bad guy goes, uh, and it's all a bit, whoa, and something happens, and I won't spoil it for you. Um, But I zone out. I completely zone out. I'm no longer in that cinema because I start to process what I saw in Cambodia. IJM's been there for 15 years rescuing girls from sex trafficking. By the grace of God last year, we saw 4,616 people rescued from slavery and sex trafficking across the world. And there was this one moment that stood out to me from Cambodia that I just started to think about while I was in the cinema, which was when I sat down with one of our aftercare workers, one of the people that really restores 
those who are rescued from sex trafficking. Her name was Sawana, and she sat down with me, and I asked her the question about why do you do this? Why for 11 years have you come alongside young girls rescued from sex trafficking, and why have you restored them? And she said one thing that kept her going. It was rescue. To see a girl rescued and how that points back to what Jesus does for us. She told me a story of this girl called Elizabeth. Elizabeth was 12 when she was trafficked into a brothel. She was servicing 15 to 20 men a day. For most of us, that's incomprehensible. And then one day, after serving 15 to 20 men for years, there's an IJM investigator that goes into the brothel with a small camera, collects the evidence, and then works with the local police and lawyers to raid the brothel. The investigators go in with Soana, the aftercare worker, and they go from room to room to room. And I don't know if you could imagine the smell, but it is tobacco, and it is sweat, and it is alcohol. And they go until they get to Elizabeth's room. They open the door and they go in and Elizabeth is cowering behind a curtain in the corner of her room. And Sawana kneels down next to her and says, you're free. And at first, Elizabeth can't quite comprehend this because she's never seen the generosity of God through human beings. And then it starts to click. And Elizabeth steps up, turns to Sawana, and says, I know where other girls are being kept. And so Elizabeth, the rescued, becomes the rescuer as she helps set free four of the girls. Sawana said the most moving thing about rescuing Elizabeth was after they had emptied the brothel, they went back into the building, and in Elizabeth's room, in the corner where she'd been hiding behind the curtain, she had written something in chalk down at the bottom of the wall. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. God is never separate from those suffering in our world. C.S. Lewis would say that we kneel in the suffering of this world, tasting the coming joy. I click back into the cinema. I'm not fully there. I'm just starting to process what Sawana has said. And just to be so humbled by seeing what Christians are doing across the world. And I honestly can't fully tell you what happens in Avengers Infinity War, so if you've seen it, please tell me afterwards. But I don't know about you, but the story of Soana and Elizabeth is really hard for me to relate to sometimes, because what I see as injustice sometimes looks a bit more like this. I'll step into a supermarket, and this happened a few weeks ago. Um, I had one item that I needed to get from a supermarket. It was an avocado. This says quite a lot about our eating habits at home. And so here I am with an avocado, and uh, it's a big supermarket, and there's three options to pay. 
You can do the self-service, which, you know, there's a long queue. You can do the normal checkout aisle, or you can do the 10 items or less, which seems like the no-brainer when all you have is an avocado. So I go to the 10 items or less aisle. I step into the queue, and there's two people in front of me. First person is served, moves on. But it's taking a bit of time, and I get a bit uh, impatient, and I'm there slightly frustrated. And so I just look at the man in front of me, and I see he has a fairly full basket of ingredients. And so I count his basket. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13. Now, I don't know what you think, but 13 is definitely more than 10 items in the 10 items or less aisle. And I'm there slightly frustrated, so I do that really British passive-aggressive thing. I don't know if you've ever done this, where I just exhale really loudly. <sighs> and I don't know what I was hoping would come from this situation, but, you know, the man ignores me. And I'm left with two conclusions. Either this man is you know, can't read, but he's wearing a gilet, so he can blatantly read. Or he's, um, he's just blatantly disregarding the rules. And this is my concept of injustice, where somebody, you know, has too many items in their shopping basket, where something doesn't quite go to plan, where maybe somebody cuts through a, a queue. It's really quite mundane compared to, compared to Elizabeth. In the Bible, this concept of injustice is usually where one people group exploit another. Oppression. In the Bible, there are two words that explain this in Hebrew. There's mizpat and there's sadek. And these two words complement each other and come alongside each other. This idea of mizpat is really simply what we would understand as correcting injustice, as righting wrongs. And usually, it's used around the people groups that are on the fringes of society. And God explains that these people who are oppressed will receive mizpat. That corrective justice will be done to the oppressors, and the oppressed will be set free. And it comes alongside zadek, the word which explains a fullness of community. This idea of going back to God's image of how we should live together. And these words come together to make our understanding today of social justice. In the Hebrew, that usually leads back to one word that we're probably all a lot more familiar with. Shalom. Peace. And so, as I look at the one avocado that I've got in my hands, I'm deeply humbled by knowing that the injustice that God wants to rid from this world go so much deeper than what I may experience in my day-to-day -day life. Could you turn to page 60 in your Bibles? If you are working from a phone, which is absolutely fine, we're going from Exodus chapter 3, verse 7 onwards. I am sure that this may well be a passage that you're familiar with. If not, it's a great passage. I'm going to start at verse 7, chapter 3, page 60. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering. So I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, 
and I've seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go. I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses says to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you, and this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. This is a pretty good example of injustice. Let's set the context of Exodus 3. We meet a man called Moses, who is born into a world of privilege. In Exodus 2, just a chapter before, we meet Moses growing up in an environment where he is, on behalf of Pharaoh's family, growing into privilege. But he's kind of stuck between these two worlds because he's grown up in this environment, but actually he's an Israelite who are currently all enslaved. And so Moses in chapter 2 comes across this situation where he sees an Egyptian slave master beating an Israelite slave. The two worlds that Moses is trapped between. And he feels a sense of injustice that I feel when I hear Elizabeth's story. A sense of injustice of seeing things not as God intended them to be. And so Moses responds to the anger that he feels in his heart and he kills the Egyptian slave master. That probably wasn't the best idea. And so in the rest of Exodus 2, basically, Moses is alienated by his own people, the Israelites, and finds himself having to escape out of Egypt and spends the next 40 years of his life exiled. He's engaged with the suffering of this world. But if we don't go in God's strength, then I guarantee you it's not going to go to plan. He was overwhelmed by the injustice, and his knee-jerk reaction was to kill an Egyptian slave master, which was never God's intention. And so it all goes wrong. And so we pick the story back up, this narrative with Moses in Exodus 3, where actually he's still got this burning passion, but he doesn't know how this comes into fruition. He doesn't know how one small man can ever help rid this world of injustice. And so we get the burning bush, a bush that will not stop burning. And I don't know how you would respond to seeing a burning bush that will not stop burning. In the Bible, it says that Moses hid his face. But I think my response would be slightly more like this. Like, I, w I would be freaked out, absolutely freaked out. And so Moses is here, and he encounters God through this burning bush. And this is what God says, is I have heard the misery of my people. I have seen the slave masters, and I want to bring rescue. Yet again, we see that God is never separate from the suffering of this world, and that brings me a deep sense of joy to know that, as it says in Revelation, there will come a time where everything is made new. And so Moses is here, and God tells to him, you're my man. I want you to go and rescue my people from the Egyptians. The Egyptians are the most powerful people in the world at the time. So that's basically like somebody going to the president of America and persuading him to give up his most lucrative form of, of money, because that's what the slaves were. It's absolutely ridiculous. And here's two even bigger barriers in, the, in front of Moses. It's firstly, what we found out, he's a murderer. So 
he's not the ideal person to go to a man in a position of authority. And secondly, he's got a speech impediment. So he's not going to be the most ideal person to go and do public speaking in front of the most powerful man in the world. Moses feels deeply unequipped to deal with the suffering of this world. I feel deeply unequipped to deal with the suffering of this world. I don't know if you do too. Doing things like the night shelter and seeing all the other incredible things that St. Mark's does. There are just moments that I step away and I go, oh, wow. The world isn't as God wants it to be. And it's easy for us to then respond by just getting numb. Going home and just watching Netflix, which is fine. I don't actually have Netflix, but I thought that was, you know, the most, the, the best example. But actually, suffering can be really overwhelming. And so Moses sees this, and he feels overwhelmed, and he communicates this to God, and he explains how he's got a speech impediment, about how he is a murderer, how he's fully unequipped to deal with this problem of slavery. And God says, it's through me. You've already tried a chapter before to do it by yourself. So now let me be your strength. And let's cut to the chase. In Exodus 4, we keep on going back and forth. And Moses consistently feels like he's completely unequipped to deal with this problem. And so God turns to Moses and says one simple thing. What have you in your hands? Moses had laid a staff on the ground. The staff that for the past 40 years he's used to be a shepherd, to shepherd the sheep. And God simply says, pick your staff back up. And with that staff, Moses parts the Red Sea. Moses turns the Nile to blood. Moses turns the staff into a snake, into a serpent. God uses the staff to do miracles that Moses never thought were possible. When we look at what we have in our hands, it's so incredibly easy to think, oh, God can't use that. God really can't use that. There is, there is nothing I've got that could actually be useful in the fight against slavery, in, more broadly, in the fight against injustice. I literally am not equipped to respond to this. But actually, it's all in his power. And God wants to use the most mundane things to do the most miraculous, miraculous change. And so this is what we do at IJM, is we seek to rescue people from slavery, to restore them, and to bring the criminals to justice. And every day, people like Soana step into the office in Cambodia and think, wow, I feel deeply overwhelmed and unequipped to deal with this problem. And so we spend the first 30 minutes of our day praying to God, praying that God will see that transformation. In Cambodia, over 15 years, we've seen the number of people in sex trafficking who are children reduced from a 30% prevalence to less than 0.1%. In the Philippines, we worked with the Bill Gates Foundation to combat sex trafficking, and the foundation thought we'd get a 20% reduction. We got a 79% reduction. And we can put this down to incredible work by our lawyers and our social workers, and that's so true, but actually, every day for us starts 
with prayer, with the belief that calling on an almighty God can bring transformation, knowing that God is calling us to pick back up our staff, that we feel is not enough, and through that, God will do more than we could possibly imagine. And so, come back here on Saturday, because we've got a massive day of prayer, and our plan is to pray to an almighty God that we will see an end to slavery in this generation. To believe that what we have in our hands is enough. In 1785, there is a man called Thomas Clarkson. He is in no way related to Jeremy. But Thomas Clarkson is just doing what the average person in his 20s does. He's writing a Latin essay. He's entered a Latin essay writing competition. I don't know if you've ever done that. I won't ask you to raise your hands, because if you have, then you'll probably lose all street cred. Um, and so here's Thomas writing a Latin essay. And the title of the essay for this competition is, Is It Immoral to Enslave the Unwilling? Is It Immoral to Enslave the Unwilling? Now, for us, that's a no-brainer. Slavery is wrong. But British culture in 1785 looks really different. Thomas is growing up in a world where actually slavery isn't just part of culture. It's the foundation of our society. And so Thomas steps up to this blank piece of paper with his quill thinking about how to write words in Latin. And he does his reading. He reads the Bible he reads other papers, and he comes to this revolutionary conclusion. And slavery is wrong. Thomas writes the essay, hands it in. It goes really well, and he wins the Latin, Latin essay writing competition. You know, we can give Thomas a gold star, pass on the back. Very well done, Thomas. But something more important happened. Thomas's heart broke for what breaks God's heart. And on the way home... Thomas gets off his horse, kneels on the ground, and commits his life to seeing an end to the slave trade. And Thomas feels deeply overwhelmed. He feels like Moses. He feels like us, that what we have is not enough to transform this world. And so he does the only two things that he knows he can do. He prays to an almighty God, and he starts to talk to the people that he knows. And it just so happens that two years later, Thomas sits down next to a man called William Wilberforce. Your incredibly small actions can transform this world. And we have no idea what God is doing in this place. Thomas and William Wilberforce sit down. And over the next 20 to 30 years, a movement starts to rise with Hannah Moore, with Oliado Equiano, with this wave of abolitionists who seek to, to ban and boycott sugar because they know that every cube of sugar had a blood of slavery in it. They seek to do campaigning. They seek to pass motions through parliament. And eventually, in 1807, slavery was abolished. But it wasn't quite enough. And it took another 26 years for slavery to be abolished across the British Empire. Let me put that in context. That's 48 years after Thomas and William Wilberforce first sit down together. Because ending injustice 
it's probably going to take a lifetime. And it's probably going to be deeply worth it. Moses starts his mission when he's 80. God wants to do something exceptional with us. And so I invite you to join us on Saturday. Voratida and I will be just out there. You can sign up for the prayer day there. You can sign up for it on your phones. Just Google IJM Prayer Day in London. But let's start ending slavery in this world today through prayer. If you want to support us in any other way, then that is just so, so great. You can give to us financially. You can pray for us. But know this. What you have in your hands is most definitely enough when we bring it to God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you want to see the oppressed set free. Lord, we thank you that you have done it so many times before us. And Lord, right now, we pray that you will do it again. Lord, we know that there is so much suffering in this world. And Lord, we know that you are so much bigger. And so, Lord, will you help us to do some very small things? Will you help us to take some very small steps that together start a movement that sees an end to slavery and injustice? And Lord, we know that in your strength and your power, we can see this as the last generation of slavery ever. In Jesus' name, amen.